0: Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Ins- Insights. Thanks, sponsors, Top Spinini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins, Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium, Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, CompC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. Today's episode with Mike Kramer, his book just came out, Kramer's Choice. Rich, Klein, and I uh, were waiting for the book to come out. Unfortunately, my book has not arrived. Uh, but on the good side, I've, uh, Mike is my contemporary and good friend. And Rich and I go way back with Mike. And so uh, uh, we don't need the book because we were, we, were, uh, we were there at the same time. So thanks, Mike. And thanks, listeners. And here it is.
1: You had a printing press at your facility. We did, but we didn't print most of our uh, cards. Most of those were printed at Quinto or one of the other printing companies. We did cutting and packaging, but all that specialty work had to be sent out.
0: Even the layering with the jersey swatches and things like that? Cause those that are... was
1: done down there okay. at Quinto. Or there was another two or three facilities we used in the Jersey swatches. Some were cut at our facility, and some were cut by a guy in Texas. And then all of the placing of the swatches was done at Johns Burns, who was doing the die cutting and lamination
0: and all that. We're hearing now about these mistakes and things like that. I think you didn't have that many mistakes. Did you have somebody go? Observe- if had one. No, you've had some. I'm not saying you had one famous <laughs> one at least, but I'm just saying that once the card proofs or the art is shipped to the printer and the printer has to execute, there can be things that go wrong. And the quality control is not just from the printer. It's making sure that the right swatch goes with the right player and that all the coloring and the serial numbering and all that stuff. Did you have to send somebody to the printer to be a watchdog? Or did they um, just do a really good job? We did
1: once or twice, but we had a good system on how we facilitated that. And how we did it was once we cut the jersey pieces, they were bagged, numbered, and given a grid number. And so you couldn't screw it up too easy. We did find a few, and we had a good quality control system in place once we found that card you're talking about and realized that mistakes could be made. And our quality control people went through the cards before we placed them in the packaging room. And we found a few swatches that weren't the right particular one. Um, but if you think uh, about 50 or 60 cards on the sheet and each one's different and that requires 60 placements of jersey swatches, things could go wrong. A, a like, double stick tape was placed and then the jersey swatch was stuck to it and then the sheet was glued and laminated. If you put the swatch in the wrong spot, you got the wrong piece in that card. That's how that could come
0: about. Do you take great pride in knowing that you were one of the guys that took the hobby to the next level in many ways, but especially some of these technological and printing innovations that you did? Because you made it really difficult for us price guide guys, but you really took it to the next level. That's part of your legacy, and it's almost all good, but it really complicated things.
1: That's what the people are telling me is... We started this whole thing, and I do take great pride in that because I enjoyed my job when I was doing it, and we got a lot of criticism back then for some of the things we were doing. But as it turns out, yeah. uh, if we hadn't have done that, what they're doing nowadays uh, may not evolve to this level. We did a lot of parallels, nothing compared with what I'm seeing now. But what we did back then was driving people crazy. And now I think they look back on it and say, that's what's driving the current market is some of this innovation we did.
2: Here's something in retrospect, you were absolutely brilliant on. You had a storefront by your offices. In those days, we were thinking that's the ultimate conflict of interest. Today, we realize that's the best prime marketing you can get for your own products to see what was selling, what was not selling. Was that the purpose of the store?
1: Originally, I did a storefront because I had too many people going to my house because my mail order catalog address was my home, and it was just like day and night people coming by. The store meant nothing. When we first opened it, it was to fill our mail order catalog business. And the store was secondary, and it turned into a novel thing we did and back then and turned into a retail moneymaker. But mainly it was to get it out of the house. And, I'm sure uh,
2: Cheryl and your children appreciated people
1: stopping coming to your house. It, yes, exactly. But one of the reasons I did the Griffey Bar was when I did it, made that thing, and we put some in the store and they flew. And had I not had that store, I wouldn't have had that opportunity to know that, that this thing was going to be huge for us. Even when I made my baseball legends back in the 80s, first we put them in our store and they just went away. And I said, I got something here. Without that store, we wouldn't have that hands-on marketing and be able to see what we might be able to sell. It was a great tool for us. And it continued up until, at one point, I had three stores. And when we built the building on Highway 99, the, the manufacturing plant, we put a store there for a while. It was only there for four or five years, I think. But we got that same hands-on, is this going to be a good product or not? But eventually, we ran out of space and had to uh, close that store and turn it into a cutting room for cutting cards. But, yeah, it was uh,
0: a necessary thing that worked out well for us. I think you're not giving yourself enough credit. If I look at all the card company executives out there, the CEOs and the leaders in the industry, you would be the guy that least needed market research because... I think your instincts were spot on. You're talking about a series of things you did that really worked. And you had market research by having the storefront to ratify. That was a good idea. But it was a good idea. And that proved it. But your instincts were always good. Because most of the companies in the industry now, and even to this day, they're hiring a sharp person as a CEO. And they're saying, now go think like a collector. And they've got all this business savvy of how most industries work, but they can't think like a collector if they weren't a collector, at at least a collector of something. But you not only were a collector, you were a massive, super serious collector of sports cards and, and cards in general, too. And I was, too. And so I didn't have to try to think like a collector. It was in your DNA. It was in my DNA. It's in Rich's DNA. The storefront. We delighted in that. When we went up there and visited, it was just really cool. I yeah. delighted
2: in going to the office because it reminded me of the Beckett offices. Well, with I mean, all it's the big, it's collectibles big, big hung on the wall and yeah. of everybody with their individuality they had at their offices or cubicles. It was always a fun visit. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now I've got a back house. Mike, uh, not exactly like your museum, but I've got my own little version of something where I can keep my cards Reasonably,
2: your willingness to take risks was that spurred
1: by the work you did as a fisherman? I never went to college. If you go to college, maybe your mindset's different because you've learned something. And for me, it was I'm doing this, and maybe I don't know any better. I'm doing it because I want to do it. And because my instincts tell me this is going to work or this product's going to go good for us, had I gone to college, Maybe I would have known something different and said, you can't take that risk. I took risks, but in my mind, they weren't really risks because I knew how they were going to turn out. When I put that first packaging machine that the VF wrapper in my building, I knew I had something there once I got that thing going. Maybe it was a risk to some people, but to me, it wasn't. It was just, this is what I got to do and this is what I'm doing and make it work. And I did make it work.
2: You spent a lot of time talking about the Pacific years you were major manufacturer. I find a great enjoyment in the 70s minor league sets and the 80s minor league sets you did. And you've even put yourself on a card. What was it like the first time you saw your picture on your
1: own trading card? <laughs> Probably like seeing my book for the first time, where you look at it and go, boy, look at this. This is fun. I did that card for a reason and it was because I wanted to reach out to other collectors in the Phoenix area and it it worked I found other collectors like Wayne Grove and Bob Wilkie and we started a little club and that's because 25,000 or 2,500 people at the Phoenix Municipal Stadium got those sets and reached out so there was an actual purpose in that now it's a collectible like the rest of the cards are.
0: It's on my wall, (laughs) one of my top 1,000. Is it signed? I'll work on that one of these days. Let's see.
2: I don't think I've ever owned that card. And I actually need a card like that because my one last collection is actually hobby-related sports cards. That's a great photo.
0: Was that
1: 1975?
0: Yes. I think we met in 75.
1: I think we first met at the Indianapolis. uh, I still have the program from that show. Both our names are in it. There's table holders.
0: Yeah. I remember meeting you there and you had really long hair and you're a little bit younger than me, but I was a young guy too. But I just remember you saying your goal was to have all the cards. And I was thinking that's crazy. And then I realized you already had millions of cards, I think, by that time.
1: Yeah, I was trying to sell a few to get them out of my place. And so I did a few shows. And also, if you sold some cards back then, you got some more money. You got to buy some more cards and exactly. I just replaced the ones I sold with boxes Better. of other ones.
0: But I remember you saying how many T two6s you had, and it just was pretty incomprehensible. Here's this guy younger than me. And I had aspirations too, Mike, but I didn't go in exactly that direction. But how did you make this deal with tops? Were the ori- were you the original guy? Why uh, in Arizona were there these remainders from Tops? Were they the Western US or what was going on there? I was the first one in 1977. A
1: TOPS rep came to visit me because I had uh, a, a set of my mail order catalog called 1977 TOPS cloth stickers. I had printed in my catalog that hot off the press. And that was a catch word. TOPS suddenly wanted to know how come I had all these cards because they were only sold in a few areas. So he came to my house and said, How come you got all these cards? Are you making these cards? I said, No, I bought them. He said, There's none around here. In Arizona, they're all sold out. And I said, that's because I bought every case in the area. We struck up a conversation because he knew he, uh, I was a guy who was willing to buy a lot of cards. And I said, I'll buy all the tops, leftover cards or anything else you have from Tops that, that I could sell and make sets and sell in my catalog. So he put me on to the Tops West Coast manager named Tom Williams. And Tom realized that I could buy... Whatever they had. I didn't want just a handful. I take anything they had. Non-sports, collectible stuff that they made included some of the little Star Wars heads. And I was buying all that stuff. And I was fishing crab at the same time, so I was gone a lot. And I didn't have time to sell it. It was semi-loads and semi-loads of cases. And it all came from out of uh, California, Texas, the Midwest. And then they started shipping me
0: leftovers out of Durie. You're 24 years of age. You're 24. Mm-hmm. I had an instinct.
1: Even the guys I was fishing crab with said, "What are you nuts? Putting your money into that?" Did
0: you have co-investors, or did you have any kind of no. bank relationship? Where you just cash basis?
1: I was all cash basis. When I was fishing crab back then, it was a
0: gold mine. Our boat was the top
1: catching boat in the fleet, the Highliner boat. And the crew members of which I was, and there was only back then three, and then it expanded to four or five, but our shares were just, I was making more than the president of the United States as a crew member. So I had money and that continued up till four, 1984, when I started making baseball legends, I got so busy and I didn't have room for any more tops closeout cases. And I'd gone through a lot of it. They started shipping me in 77. But this included stuff clear back as early as 68 and 69 because they had some of that left over. I paid the invoices, and that's what they wanted. Stored it away because I didn't have time to sell it. But eventually, were, were you parsing it out to wholesalers? Keep in mind, back then, I had a plastic sheet business. I was the first guy into that and in, in supplying catalog. the hobby through my catalog. I had the plastic sheet and binders and the white. Folding boxes all first came from me, and I originally had all of that. Other guys started doing it, but I was the first guy into that. Stores were opening up across the country in, say, 84, 85. They really started opening, and a little bit before that. So I had a pretty good base of people to sell to, and almost all of it went through my wholesale catalog. And I listed those cases. But the first time I listed them was... Seventy nine, I ran an ad in Trader Speaks because my wife said we're running out of space and you got to get some of this out of here. And you can read that story in my book. Here's the book, Kramer's Choice, It's available through Amazon and on my website. And that website's www.unitedempireminiatures.com, all one word.